Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora. Well, economic data from Germany showed a massive reduction in exports in August. U.S. stock prices took a beating on the results, and Christine Lagarde warns that the eurozone might slip into recession. Today, we'll look at whether the U.S. dollar can remain in an appreciating trend given the confusion signaled by the Federal Reserve. Mark Matthews of Julius Baer will join us for that discussion. And Danny Hicks, editor of Sports Direct at AFP, will join us for a postmortem on whether the Asian Games has too many events. And of course, joining us through the half-hour discussion as special guest host is Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Good morning, Richard. Hello, Renita. So let's look at the top stories today. Uh, U.S. stocks tumbled, losing about 2% in a broad sell-off as weak economic data from Germany showed a massive 6% drop in exports in August. This heightened concerns about poor overseas growth. At the market close, the Dow Jones Industrial Average stood at 16,659, down a heavy 335 points. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq also shed about 2% each to 1,928 and 4,378 respectively. The S&P VIX index that measures volatility, also known as the fear index, jumped more than 24% to 18.76, its highest reading since February. Oil prices also tumbled on concern over slowing global growth and abundant crude supplies. Brent crude oil, the international benchmark, dropped below $90 to a two-year low of $89 a barrel. It was the lowest close since June 2012. Currently, Brent crude is at just about $90 per barrel. AP correspondent Warren Levinson has more. On Wall Street, you can choose your metaphor. Roller coaster, trampoline, yo-yo. Tuesday, share prices were down one and three quarters percent. Wednesday, back up. Thursday, back down by about two percent. The Dow Jones Industrials fell just about 335 points. Leading the way down, the energy stocks, a result of both soaring oil production and slowing industrial activity around the world. Those falling gasoline prices you've been paying is leading investors to dump energy stocks. ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Peabody, the big coal company, all did a face plant. Here in the region, the Australian markets are open. The ASX is down 1.8% to 5,193. The head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, has said that there is serious risk that the eurozone might actually slip back into recession. The BBC's Andrew Walker has more. Ms Lagarde's comments ahead of the IMF's annual meetings of finance ministers in Washington add to the growing chorus of concern about the economic situation in the Eurozone. A recovery that began last year has come to a halt. Ms Lagarde said recession is avoidable if the right policies are pursued, but she warned the risk is at least 35%. Earlier news that German exports fell sharply in August underlined the challenges in what has been one of the Eurozone's stronger economies during the region's period of very weak economic performance. So doom, gloom and worry. Richard, can you give us a rundown of what exactly happened in Europe overnight? Yes, well, these uh, weakened uh, export and manufacturing figures certainly uh, affected the market quite substantially, uh, although there were some question marks about quite how bad they were in terms of uh, their holidays in August and also the Ukraine issue. But in just seven days, France is down nearly 6% and Germany's down 5%. Uh, yesterday, the markets closed before the midday sell-off in New York, so the DAX was up a tick at about 9,005, and the CAC was down two-thirds of a point at 4,141. 
Uh, with all of the worries, the US 10-year Treasury bond continued to attract support. It uh, dipped below its yield, but it finally ended uh, flat at uh, 2.33%. The German 10-year bond, however, is just at 0.9%. Hong Kong's continued to perform robustly, up 1.17% yesterday, or 271 points, to close at 23,535. And that was catching up on a Shanghai market that continues to outperform world indices. Okay, we're joined now by Chris Oliver uh, in the studio, and he has brought in uh, guest Satyajit Das on the phone, to, um, who has some further opinions about Europe. Chris, over to you. Yes, good morning. The IMF earlier this week lowered its global growth outlook, citing weakness in emerging markets and the eurozone. The outlook was lowered to 3.8%. That's down slightly from its view uh, in July of 4% growth. Although it's a modest cut, it signals underlying weakness at a time uh, well, after following a period of enormous uh, monetary stimulus to boost up markets. We're joined now on the phone by Satyajit Das, a former investment banker turned financial commentator and author. Uh, good morning, Satyajit. Good morning. So uh, what do you make of the downgrades uh, by the IMF? Well, I'd start off by saying the IMF have consistently overestimated growth. So basically, over the last two or three years, they have consistently put out a growth figure and they've had to downgrade it. So first thing is that they are not terribly reliable. The second comment I would make is that if you, as uh, you're correct in assuming that there's been this massive fiscal and monetary stimulus and growth is still anemic, then it calls into question the sustainability of this recovery. And effectively, we now have, if I separate the world into four blocks, the U.S. is sort of functioning the Eurozone, as has been repeatedly pointed out over the last week or so, is weakening markedly. And Japan, there's huge doubts about whether Abenomics will work. And certainly in the emerging market blocks, if you look at the so-called BRICS, South Africa is close to recession, Brazil is flat. And if I look at Russia, it has its own political problems. But the most important thing about China and India is people have very short memories. China was growing at 14% at one stage not that long ago. Its growth is now in 6 to 7% range. And in the case of India, it's gone from 9 to 5. So if you take all that into account, it's hardly surprising. But the real issue is not that the growth is ameliorating. The real issue is that the huge amounts of debt that we built up before 2008 and haven't dealt with because the debt has actually increased is going to become harder and harder to deal with in an environment of firstly low growth, but what is now emerging, certainly in Europe and certainly to a lesser extent in other parts of the world, deflation. So I think, generally speaking, I do not actually understand the mood in financial markets which every time real growth is downgraded, rallies hopelessly on the basis of lower interest rates and the fact that no tightening will take place. Given that the IMF numbers came out earlier this week, were you surprised by the reaction on Wall Street to to the numbers? There was a strong drop. Well, nothing about Wall Street ever surprises me, and I think the best way to describe Wall Street is they've written themselves memos which go to the actual effect. The worst the growth numbers are and the more pessimistic the real economy is, the more they buy stocks. It is almost like the complete opposite of what you would expect. So it's certainly not surprising because they're now expecting the actual considerable time that Janet Yellen talks about in terms of increasing interest rates to be perhaps more considerable than first thought. And the other interesting thing here is what we're going to see is now competing policies. 
Because clearly Europe will have to launch some sort of fiscal stimulus. The monetary settings will be very low and same in Japan. Now that puts enormous pressure on Janet Yellen to actually manage the US dollar. Because if she puts up interest rates and the US dollar rallies, the export component of the US recovery will be badly affected. And she's acutely aware of that. So this is now a race to the bottom in terms of currencies and rates again. So I think overall, it's now a very confusing picture. But most importantly, I think I never believe the volatility figures that people throw around. Richard, you had a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, that's uh, a bit short on time. Just my, what you're sort of saying is you seem to be very much on the bearish tack. I mean, for instance, uh, the figures in Europe aren't totally bad. It looks as if maybe the market's just taking it as a a period to, to come off a little bit. But don't you think there's still enough information out there for the markets to carry on ahead? Well, the markets are basically not looking at the real economy. They've completely decoupled from the real economy. It's now a simple, pure carry trade. And that decoupling at some point in time will correct in one of two ways. One way is the real economy will, as you say, pick up. Or alternatively, the markets will correct back to what the real economy is saying. Have you got any thoughts on timing for when that might happen? Well, I think the, the crucial thing in Europe, I think, is the deflation numbers and also the German weakness. But I think once Italian debt ticks over 140% of GDP and the concern about French and Italian willingness to reform actually registers, you might see an acceleration of that time frame. Das, uh, you said earlier that you were surprised that uh, when the news is bad, the stock market seems to react positively. That's almost that they want to buy. But isn't that the point? Shouldn't they be buying? Shouldn't investors be buying in moments of weakness because then the only way is up? Well, uh, if you buy every dip, you'll end up with owning the world. But a fundamental thing in this world is that the actual stock market, any financial claims, has to be a claim on the real economy. So it has to be on the real economy and the growth in that, the cash flows that they generate. And that seems to be completely lost in this picture. We have this sort of magic pudding world where people assume low interest rates drive everything. The IMF has a number of policies that they've announced over the summer to kind of boost up uh, lending growth. What, What do you make of those? Well, I think they're saying that there's going to be more fiscal stimulus, and that's a very laudable objective. And the real issue is that that doesn't deal with the other side of the equation, how that's going to be financed. Because the answer to that seems to be we'll print money or actually create more debt. And some countries can certainly afford to do that. There's no doubt about that. But other countries can't. But it doesn't actually address the fundamental issue that we should have actually restructured a lot of this debt after 2008, 2009. And we just refused to. Okay, Satyajit, thank you very much for being on the program with us. Okay, and thank you, Chris. So uh, Britain is preparing to issue a yuan-denominated sovereign bond, the first of its kind by a Western nation outside China. The UK Treasury said it selected Bank of China, HSBC and Stand Chartered to arrange the bond sale, but it gave no details of the issue size. Britain wants to boost links with Beijing and bolster London's status as a global financial hub. And on the tech front, billionaire investor Carl Icahn told Bloomberg that he expects that Apple could do another share buyback of $100 billion. This is following a letter he wrote to Apple on Wednesday urging the company to buy back more stock because he believes the company is massively undervalued. He said that what's appealing about Apple is that when you buy into it, you are buying the entire package, hardware, software, and all of its subsidiary products. What what it is is a sort of an annuity where you own an ecosystem. You own, you know, you, you own the iPad, but you also own the watch, and you also own 
the, the, the iPhone 6, and you have all your collection of photographs on it, you have all your music on it, and yet you don't go away from that when you're used to it and when you're really involved in it. And if you, But you do go away, and you do get market share, too, from, say, the Samsung that isn't quite on the same level. And Samsung is a good company and all, but they're making the hardware and Google's making the software. And it's a big difference when you have one company doing the whole thing. Mr. Ican said that he talked with Tim Cook, who agreed that the company was cheap. And Mr. Ican argued that Apple stock should trade at $203, which is significantly higher than its current price of $101. What say, Richard? Well, uh, he would say that, wouldn't he? Because he owns quite a lot of it. But uh, it's quite interesting. I've almost never heard him be positive about a company before. Usually he goes as an activist investor and says, look how terrible you're doing. Now it's a slightly different strategy. He's going in and saying, it's not too bad. So why do you think he's so bullish about Apple? He's probably got all the iPad and the <laughs> iPhone and, and, and all the rest of it as well. And, and it is quite captivating. You know, they ha- have been the company really of the last five years. And mm. um, uh, it's not surprising they've gone up in the last few days when the rest of the market's gone down. Do you agree with what he says that, for example, when you have a Samsung, there's a disconnect between the software and the hardware component because the software comes from Google, perhaps, and, you know, hardware from uh, the manufacturer, Samsung, whereas in Apple... Uh, they've got this competitive advantage because everything is just one unit. Well, you know, I think it's competition, isn't it? And the geeks would say they'd rather have it separate because there's going to be more creativity with different companies. Uh, And yet there's obviously a large Apple ecosystem where people who just want to use Apple. So in other company news, PepsiCo reported a $17.2 billion in its third quarter revenue, up 2% from the year ago, uh, from the year ago quarter and edging above the 17.1 billion analyst consensus. The chairman Indra Nui says that despite increasing volatility in the emerging markets and continued sluggish consumer demand in developed markets, PepsiCo has seen good results because it has strong brands, its product portfolio is on trend, and its geographic footprint is broad and diverse. PepsiCo's share price hit a 52-week high of $96 before closing down 37% at $93.57 as the markets fell last night. The company's shares are up 13% so far this year. Now, compare that to a 4% gain in the S&P 500. What do you think of that, Richard? Well, again, it's interesting that uh, companies that are good and well-managed, you know, are are holding against the stream. It it does seem to me as if this current volatility is maybe a mid-market volatility and that the bull market is likely to uh, carry on. Your suggestions on buying PepsiCo or into the FMCG sector or your stock tip for the day? Well, it's probably going to be the kind of stock that will do well, especially as we see U.S. job figures looking quite good, and hopefully that's going to lead into earnings, U.S. job earnings. Uh, That's going to be tempered by the fact that if earnings increase, people are going to be worried about interest rate increases. So I think we can see this volatility continue. But underlying there is still an element of growth, which uh, I think will continue to be positive on the markets. Okay, a quick look at the numbers. The dollar's rise has held this week with the euro at $1.26. The US yen right now is at 107.9 and the pound is at 1.6 US dollars. That's 12, uh, that's, uh, that's 12 uh, Hong Kong dollars and 50 cents to the pound. Gold remains steady at $1,223 per ounce, up a little in the weak line. 
uh, weaken the line with a slight weakness in the US dollar. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and we'll be back uh, to talk more about the confusion that is the Fed. That's right after this message. This year's vaccination subsidy scheme under the Department of Health has started. Eligible children and elderly people can go to enrolled private clinics for flu vaccination. The subsidy has been increased to $160 per dose this year. As it takes about two weeks after vaccination for antibodies to develop in body, please get vaccinated early for earlier protection. For details, please call 2125 2125. Well, will the U.S. dollar continue its uptrend against major currencies? Recent signals that the U.S. central bank is not so eager to raise interest rates could mean the greenback's rise will be more gradual. Of course, this has uh, important implications for asset prices. But the Fed's language has been confusing. On one hand, they talk about considerable time, and on the other hand, they talk about uh, their decisions being dependent on the data. Here's what Fed Reserve Vice Chairman Stanley Fisher had to say at a panel uh, that he spoke at at the IMF annual meeting in Washington. What we think now is that the capital markets have it more or less right, but we don't ourselves know when we're going to do it. We are going to look at the data. Now people say, how can you say a time and it's data driven? We look at the data. We have forecasts of the data. On the basis of our forecasts of the data, we can guess what we will do if that is turns out to be right. On the basis of that forecast, it looks like the markets more or less have it right somewhere in the middle of the year. The data are different. That's not what's going to happen. The data, the data, the data. Adding to the jitters were comments from a Fed official who suggested that investors had unrealistic expectations about the Fed's eventual rate increase. St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank President James Bullard said that he was concerned by a disconnect between the market's view of the Fed's rate increase path and the central bank's own view. Let's bring in Mark Matthews, the head of Asia Research at Julius Baer. He joins us now from Singapore. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Mark, what do you make of the Fed's comments? Um, I think that they like to be in control in things, and they didn't like the fact the dollar was rising so quickly, so they, they're coming in and trying to talk about it and uh, manage it. And although the U.S. economy is basically a very large domestic engine, it's not very reliant on exports, they uh, said what, they, what concerned them about the dollar was um, how it's, uh, strength may lower the cost of imported goods and therefore prevent them from reaching their 2% inflation target. Um, so, so that's what I think about that. But Mark, we have a situation here where the Fed notes come out of uh, them deliberating. I think it was Otto von Bismarck said you should never see laws and taxes made, and it looks as if it's the same as Fed policy because now we're all confused. Yeah, well... Um, I guess they like to confuse us, and that's the way they keep uh, things, uh, you know, in their control instead of the market um, controlling things. They they uh, they control it. But I think the, for, in my mind, the best uh, sign I saw on uh, future uh, you know interest rates was a paper issued by the San Francisco Fed, Fed uh, on the 29th of September, where they studied um, the options market and uh, the implications. Uh, for uh, the Fed funds rate. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that the San Francisco Fed said the most likely value of the Fed funds rate would be 0.55 by the end of next year and 
one uh, 1.4, excuse me, by the end of 2016, and that would imply a uh, pace of um, uh, increase of about one percentage point per year, which is half of the pace in historic uh, policy tightening periods. And when is so? Yeah. When is Julius Baer looking then at the first rise? Yeah, well, we're pretty much in the same camp as everybody else. Sometime in the middle of next year is what the Fed's been guiding for. But and, actually, we've uh, been going from a situation where people have said September and then they're all saying March, and now does it look as if we're now creeping back towards uh, mid-end of the year? Yeah, yeah so uh, I don't know if it matters that much which month it is, but um, you know, somewhere in the middle of next year is, is probably when they'll do it. And uh, But as Stanley Fisher said, you know, the, the little uh, soundbite you just played, it is data-dependent, and I think what's riling markets now is not so much the United States, the economy there actually doing quite well. It's what's going on in Europe. And so if there's any fly in the ointment for um, policy, I think it is, you know, Europe lurching back into recession and then the Fed having to recalibrate, um, you know, what it's been telling so, the market. Mark, earlier there was this discussion that if the Fed decides to move faster on this, it signals that uh, the U.S. economy is actually healthy and can withstand it. But as you just mentioned, well, it's no longer dependent necessarily purely on the U.S., um, it's also dependent upon what's happening in Europe. How long do you expect the situation to continue, given that all of the news out of Europe just looks so dismal today? Well, actually, the one soundbite I thought was the most interesting overnight was from uh, none other than Angela Merkel herself. And uh, maybe it's just a, uh, a red herring, but she said uh, yesterday that... Um, her government was looking at how to encourage investment. And so the IMF and the ECB and, uh, and, and, the, and the U.S. government, everybody's been leaning on um, the Germans to uh, basically shift their position of, uh, you know, trying to, uh, uh, what should I say, uh, f- focus on their balance sheet and, uh, and fiscal discipline and, and spend a little more money. And so this may be the first signal that the German government's actually prepared to do that. And if it is, that would be, I think, a major sign that um, we can relax more on the European economy. Um, otherwise, I think we'll have to wait about six months for what the ECB is going to do in terms of purchasing asset-backed securities and, and lending out a lot of money to okay. actually the economy. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, that is Mark Matthews, head of Asia Research at Julius Baer from Singapore. Well, is it time for a more compact Asian Games? Near empty stadiums and a lack of interest from the South Korean public were a regular fixture during the 16-day event. And yet Incheon, the host city, has ended up deeply indebted after financing the construction of 17 new sporting venues. We're joined now by Danny Hicks, our sports editor, uh, editor of Sport Direct at AFP. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. So, Danny, um, it sounds like the Asian Games are a um, drag on the money system. Well, they are. And, you know, I was there. I covered the whole thing for AFP, and it just was a sprawling mess, I have to say. I mean, for Sheikh uh, Ahmed Al-Fahad Al-Sabah, is the head of the Olympic Council of Asia, to come out at the end of it and say it was a rip-roaring success and, you know, we're not going to make it any smaller. And this, It's just far from, far from the point. Uh, the Asian Games is like the Olympics of Asia, and... And it's got 36 sports in it. The Olympic Games only has 28. Now, 
I'm not saying that the Asian Games should get rid of the sports that make it uniquely Asian, like Kabaddi and Septakaroor and Wushu and all these things that are uniquely Asian. That's what makes it the Asian Games. But surely there's, it's time to have a look at, do we need four martial arts in there? We've got karate, taekwondo, judo, judo wushu. I mean, it's overkill. We, uh, soft tennis. I mean, what is that? As, and tennis as well. And golf. I mean, none of the top tennis players of, of Asia, none of the top golfers were there. We had a sight of, you know, golf teams from, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia shooting 120 over par for four rounds. This is not what it's about. And they don't have qualification. Surely it's time to have a look at the whole thing and reduce it down and make it what it should be, a celebration of Asian sport. So is it the number of games rather than the actual revenue that it brings that is well, uh, what he determines as yeah, a success? Yeah, I, I mean... The, the revenue must be infinitesimally small to, compared to the cost. Now, they said this was going to be a frugal games and only cost $2 billion compared to the, you know, the, the tens of billions that Olympics cost. But, um, you know, they cut corners in the wrong places and, and they still built this, this huge 61,000 main stadium, 61,000 seat main stadium that was empty when um, the poor woman's marathon runner, she just run 26 miles she, and she comes in to do a lap of honour in a completely empty stadium. The only people there were media and officials. Don't worry, Danny, that really happens to me sad. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and there were facilities in Incheon. Incheon is a, is a new city, basically. There was lots of facilities, university gymnasiums that could have been utilised, sports fields and so on. They didn't need to build 17 new venues and have it in such a sprawling way. So who's holding it next and are they going to be interested well it's jakarta next and it's, it's interesting because it was originally due to be hanoi and hanoi has pulled out this year because of the cost and they uh, feel they can't fund it jakarta was the one that kind of lost the bid was next in line and so it's going to indonesia and i really feel you know a country such as indonesia which let's face it is not the richest country in asia how can they really make a success of it um and put the money in uh, and it's not like an Olympic Games where you can sell global TV rights and you get the global sponsorship of your Coca-Colas and your Nikes and your whatever who are going to pour money into it. But it- Danny, aren't the Olympic Games also facing a somewhat of a problem? I mean, nobody wants to host the 2022 Winter Olympics. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, uh, with Sochi this year, we've just seen this huge uh, ego trip by uh, Vladimir Putin and, and Russia to spend $50 billion on a Winter Olympics. It was just incredible. Danny, I've got to ask you just before you go, Spain lost last night. Is this <laughs> the end of the Galacticos? Uh, I, think, I think we saw the end of them in the World Cup, didn't we, when they lost, uh, what was it, 5 nil to... Uh uh, in their in their opening game, you know, so uh, to Holland, so um, yeah, I, you know, Spain were a fantastic team for a few years, but uh, their time is up, and uh, you know, Germany are the force in Europe and in the world now. <laughs> okay, thank you, for thank you change. so much for joining us this morning, Danny. That's Danny Hicks, our sports editor, and thank you to our co-host um, Richard Harris. Always a pleasure. Port Shelter Investment Management. Uh, Richard is um, on the show every Friday, so if you have any specific questions that you would like to ask him, uh, please go ahead and post a comment to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash money for nothing. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is open. It is down 1.2% to 15,289. Australia's ASX index also down uh, 1.8% to 5,198. And Seoul's Kospi down 1% to 1,945. 
A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy, dry with sunny periods during the day. The maximum temperature will be about 29 degrees. The temperature right now is 25 degrees and the relative humidity is 61%. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora signing off and now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The Secretary-General of the Federation of Students, Alex Chow, says the government was looking for an excuse to avoid talks on political reform after today's meeting was cancelled. He says students are ready to talk if the government wants genuine dialogue. He added that students would not abandon their fight for democracy. Hong Kong people might feel tired physically, but if we really feel that or think that democracy is important, to the whole generation and Hong Kong in the long run. And this is really the time to mark a turning point to the whole democratic reform. Then we should continue our fight. The aid agency Médecins Sans Frontières says there's been a sharp increase of Ebola cases in the Guinean capital Conakry. There'd been hopes that the disease was stabilising in the country where the current outbreak began. But MSF said there'd been a massive influx of new cases, adding that its facilities were reaching their limits. The deputy head of the World Health Organization, Bruce Aylward, said Ebola was now entrenched in the capital cities of all three worst affected countries. First, The situation is worse than it was 12 days ago. The disease is